0: The Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Double Media. Thanks to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. If you hear a baby crying, it's because Hugo is right in front of me eating his dinner. And if the dog is barking, it's because it's my dog. And uh, I have to record at this moment because there's no other time to record. So apologies if there's surround sound that you're not used to. But I'm on the podcast with Chris Ying, and I want to give the pre-roll for State Farm. Today's episode of the Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. Look, as you guys know, I tend to give it to you straight. And while I know a lot of things, I also know there are times when I need to lean on others for help. When it comes to insurance, State Farm is the one I count on. I love that they make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim with their app, which was just awarded Best Insurance Mobile App of 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that truly meets your needs versus cookie-cutter coverage. But what I appreciate most is that they don't mess around. They don't bother with gimmicks or games, just helpful guidance you can rely on. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. I wish that I had a better voice to do this.
1: I think you're doing a good job. I, I'm, I'm ready to buy State Farm insurance right now. I also think that the uh, soundtrack of Hugo saying whatever he's saying in the background is really, really helpful, too.
0: Yeah. But, like, I really want, I really want, like, I've been, like, thinking, like, I got to get so much better at that, like, Like a Good Neighbor, State Farm is there. Like, I'm trying to work on, like, this baritone. I wanna, I'm, I'm basically auditioning to be the voice for the commercials. Like a Good Neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. See? I'm getting there. I'm getting, You're there.
1: Not getting there. Um so today we're gonna do a mail we're, we're we're gonna do a mailbag. We've we have neglected the uh ask Dave account long enough. It's time for us to sort of dig in. And um it's a hilarious mix chang of like home cooking questions and please help me save my business questions. It really shows like how all over the place we are with this show. Um but yeah. That's what we've got today. ton of questions for you to answer.
0: Let's do this. Let the healing begin.
1: <laughs> All right. So our first question is an email from Derek B. Who says, uh, my wife has issued a moratorium on new cookbooks and equipment purchases during the COVID crisis. So there goes my dreams of owning a Donabe. How do I make that one pot fish or meat over rice dish uh, using a Dutch oven?
0: Well, Dutch oven is great. The thing with a Dutch oven is... You know it maintains heat really well. You want to make sure it's not too big of a Dutch oven. So if it's too big, it's going to be hard to cook rice in. I'm going to probably say 14 inches maximum. But if you have one of those big oval things, it may not work as well. I would just argue, not argue, suggest that you you want the smallest size Dutch oven because they cook rice incredibly well. I'd even argue that cast iron makes the best rice, even better than donabe in a normal pot. So that would be my first thing. So I, I'm arguing, I'm not arguing. I don't know why I'm saying arguing. I've been arguing so much today uh, with people on the phone. Oh my God.
1: That's just been, your default.
0: So it's just been one of those days. Um, but the, the salmon on rice is a, a really simple dish. You have to have some mastery of cooking rice on a stove. And then timing is important. So wash your rice well. Make sure that you have, it doesn't have to be a flavored broth, but, um, you know, right now I've been making a lot of hondashi rice. Uh, but I do, I just got in some of those, um, it's like a big tea packet full of kelp and shrimp and anchovies and, and, and katsuobushi. So I've been making a couple, uh, dashis or, um, something like that. Uh, you can use chicken stock or just water too, right? Cook it. And right around the time I, I don't, I know a lot of cookbooks say you should, start off with your protein. The only time I would do that, if you're doing chicken, mm-hmm. you know, you want to start that from raw, but especially when you're doing fish or shellfish, I add that right around the 12 minute mark. So, you know, I don't usually use a timer. I just try to gauge the steam that's coming out. But, uh, you know, I put the rice on full blast till it boils. I start to see steam come out and then I reduce the heat to around medium to medium low and all in, it's about 12 minutes of cook time. And then I let it rest another 10 minutes. Um, right around the 10-minute cook time when water, a lot of the water is mostly evaporated or about to, that's when I add the fish. And, uh, you know, usually you want to marinate the fish. You know, a quick, easy thing that I marinate, say, salmon. So I, we have a lot of frozen sockeye salmon, which is not as good as king salmon. Nothing is, but it makes a pretty good meal. And uh, Hugo likes it a lot. So we always try to keep it stocked. So I'll defrost that or, you know, what I do is I put it skin side up in a microwave for about four to five minutes. And I peel off the skin because I found out on the, the frozen skin, they don't really do a good job of uh, cleaning the scales. So it's a little bit hard to clean scales when you just have like a pre-portioned filet. And I, uh, I marinate it in some yuzu kosho and some agave syrup, and maybe a little soy. Or if you don't have kosho, just soy and a little syrup. Like right now, I just made salmon teriyaki, actually, and I and I use maple syrup because we don't have any sugar in the house, and it worked out great. And um, add the salmon to right around the 10-minute mark, and just, you know, if it's like room temp or just not frozen salmon, it'll be perfectly cooked by the time your rice is ready to go and uh, you're going to serve. So about all in. 22 to 25 minutes of cook time
1: you think this dish is something that i mean we, we eat this dish i know you eat this dish all the time chang and cook it for hugo and we have it at our house all the time but do you think this is like something that like most people are familiar with this idea that you are basically steaming rice in a pot a clay pot a, a dutch oven anything that's sort of like low and slow conductor of heat and then having your protein fish or whatever right on top of it you think that's that's people do that or is that like Foreign to most people.
0: Why would that be foreign? Like people eat a Salisbury steak on rice or potatoes. It's the same thing. So, no, I I don't think it's foreign at all. Um, You know, I actually think everyone should have a donabe because it's uh, just a clay vessel. It's great to cook in and it's easy to serve in. And besides cooking rice, not all donabes cook rice. There's specific donabes that are specific for cooking rice. But, um, you know, home cooking isn't about hitting the bullseye. It's about just hitting the target. So it makes it's perfectly fine the one that I have and um I like one pot cooking and this is the best of one pot cooking you have rice and a delicious protein on top uh, you really don't need anything more than that
1: that target and bullseye is a nice new analogy I haven't I haven't heard oh, that one yet you,
0: you but, like that I've been working on that <laughs>
1: that's a nice one
0: yeah um
1: <laughs> let's do let's do another home cooking question here uh can you give us this is from Daniel Inns came via our askdavidmajordomomedia.com address. And it actually is part of a trend. I've gotten a few questions about this, Chang. Um, Can you give us the DL on raw chicken? I've heard you talk about the dangers of raw chicken on the pod, but I've also seen you taste raw chicken marinade on TV. What's the philosophy? Uh, Is it cultural or scientific? Where do you draw the line at home uh, versus a a pro chef?
0: No, I don't eat raw chicken um, (laughs) at that time. (laughs) <laughs> you know, a, 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 like a lot of it is, um, I, I don't want to get in the science a lot of it, but let's just say I was willing to take the chance. You know, that I when I put my fingers in that, uh, Asha Gomez's um, delicious, uh, marinated boneless chicken that she cooks in coconut oil, which is one of the best things I've ever tasted. You know, I wasn't worried about it because, like, it was not my concern, and if I did get sick. I was willing to like accept that. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't like that worried about it, you know. But having lived in Japan, I've had raw chicken. And when I first lived in Japan, I was so scared of raw chicken. I thought that was just, you know, not acceptable. And I thought I would rather eat anything else than raw chicken until I started to visit a yakitori shop that basically just served you, you know, half a bird per person. And it was like a, you know, kaiseki of the raw chicken. And you'd start off with some slices of the raw breast that were boiled. The outside was boiled, right? Uh, Or like boiling water was poured on the outside. So it was almost like a tataki of, of a breast that served with a little um, wasabi and you dipped it in some soy and it was delicious. And, you know, um, I, I would ask a lot of people in Japan, particularly some of the cooks I would work with. And they were like, yeah, what's your problem? Like chickens. You, yeah. You don't eat chicken. That's from like bad chicken. It's pretty simple. If you eat a chicken that, you know exactly what it's eaten and it doesn't eat its own feces and all of these other things, like, you know, you, you control the slaughtering process. It's, it's totally fine. Like, um, and that's according to Japan. Like I, I and people eat raw chicken. Like I've had raw chicken, I don't know, dozen times or so. um, and it's not like they're just serving it raw, they they take the precaution of 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 like you know heating the outside of the chicken. Um and Asha's marinade had so much salt and vinegar and spice that it was just not gonna harbor any bacteria. And and uh, that was my assumption, and I think I was right because I'm still here. <laughs> um but not all chicken has equal, like going to get you sick. And in fact, it's only some chickens that are going to get you sick. And I'm not an expert in any of this. I'm just, you know, that was, this is literally what was told to me in Japan. And, um, um, I don't eat raw chicken at all, um, unless it's done in a specific way. But, you know, what would have been weird if I actually took a bite of the raw chicken in the marinade. <laughs> All I did was taste the marinade. Uh-huh. And,
1: uh, yeah. But this is, this is a common fear, I feel like. If not, I mean, I, I don't think very many people in America, home cooks, are trying to make a chicken tartare or, like, the chicken tataki that you're talking about. But, you know, I feel like the number one concern for your average American home cook is undercooked meat or specifically chicken.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, like, here, here's, here, here, I'm just going to throw this out there. When people eat chicken liver as a pate or chicken liver on toast, which is not that common, but common enough, particularly in certain restaurants, would you agree with that, chicken liver? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, chicken liver pate, totally, chicken liver mousse.
0: Guess how that chicken liver that you're eating at a good restaurant is cooked. Tell me. Medium rare. Yeah you know the last thing i'd want to eat in a chicken medium rare is the is the liver yeah the bile you know all the nastiness goes through the liver like why would you want to eat that medium rare yeah someone yeah. answered me that question
1: <laughs> i think you've just you scared a lot of people off of chicken liver moose <laughs>
0: yeah like you know what's you know what's not good if you eat if you make a chicken liver mousse with well done ch- hammered chicken livers, that's disgusting. <laughs> so, so, you know, if there's one thing you shouldn't eat, you know, medium rare, it's chicken livers. Yet, uh, people eat it all the time. They just don't realize it. So I'm not a pa- food pathogen expert. All I know is it seems like a lot of people historically have eaten raw chicken or, you know, rare chicken in Japan and not gotten sick. Um, I, Choose not to eat my chicken uh, hammered, right? I think that you can sort of serve it till it's juicy, but I don't want to see pink. And I'd also argue having served enough fried chicken and such, a lot of people don't realize that they think they're eating raw chicken, but sometimes in some chickens, whether you brined it, brining can like sometimes change the color of a chicken or a lot of times like if there's a blood vessel that bursts and it will stain the meat red. That happens actually a lot. And a lot of people are like, oh, I'm eating a raw chicken. I'm like, this is a hospitality business. You say, I'm so sorry. You're right. You know, <laughs> but uh, you're, you're, you know, in my head, it's just like, no, it's totally cooked through. It just looks that way. <laughs> right. You know, so I don't think anyone should be eating raw chicken. Number one. But it's funny enough, though, you know, when we first started cooking, like the the government ha- guidelines for cooking meat, I actually don't even know anymore because um, they're so wrong. You know, they, they they take it to a point where there's no juice left in the meat whatsoever. And it's just, you know, sterile. Um, and, you know, like, would I eat medium rare pork from a commodity farm or like some like pork chop that I don't know the provenance? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. If it's from a farm that I work with that I know, and it's a delicious heirloom heritage breed pig and it's a pork chop that you want and we brine it and you almost want to serve it like medium to medium well right you've seen that chris haven't you like a sort of a, a like a a cool set like a like a warm center pork chop yeah of course
1: it, it's i mean it, it, it the first time you see it you're kind of you know if you're used to and which i think most of us are used to Growing up with commodity pork or whatever, it's a little surprising. But, yeah, you you definitely see it in in nice restaurants with nice heirloom pork.
0: And here's the thing. Like, pork isn't supposed to be white. That was just a marketing scheme that was wildly effective. Yeah. Not the other white meat. Pork's supposed to be red.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And uh, it would be improper to have, like, a well-done, beautiful pork chop from a very special farm. So, like, again, like, I'm not going to say chicken is ever going to get to that point. But I think, you know, actually, I'm going to just say this. Chicken will never be served rare or medium rare in America. That's just never going to fucking happen.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean I don't know that I don't know, you know, I think like a medium rare heirloom beautiful piece of pork is delicious. I'm not sure that a medium rare chicken is no, 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 more no. delicious. So like that's that's probably the essential thing. No, like no, you don't want to eat that.
0: It's simple. Like chicken is cooked when there's clear liquid uh, running through it. Yeah. That's it. And, and, and if not, it should be cooked more. I, I do not serve, nor do I eat unless prepared in specific fashions any chicken that's not cooked through. but there's a big difference between cooked through and hammered.
1: yeah, big difference. Um,
0: all right, so
1: you have successfully defended your dipping your finger into the chicken marinade, I think. Um, don't eat raw chickens, people. Uh, our next question is a little bit different. oh no, um, no, but
0: you but 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 do ingest UV light and uh. <laughs> Forox. <laughs> what a fucking Yahoo.
1: <laughs> shine after you, that's right. After you've eaten an undercooked chicken, you need to put a flashlight in your mouth and, and shine it in there to kill the bacteria.
0: Man, I'm just, um, I'm just joking, Chris. I'm just joking.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Uh, we can't, we can't, we can't. Um, so we've got another, we've got another one here. A lot of people sort of responding to that question that we, we posited again of what it's going to take for diners to feel safe and, and, Oh, man, these names are crazy. Kirsten Beerline Hollenbeck says, "Um, at the end of this latest episode, you asked about people's opinions in regards to returning to restaurants and whether we would be comforted by use of masks and other PPE by workers or perhaps more afraid. I've been working hard since this first broke out in the U.S. to try and mentally come to terms with the fact that our new reality might include regular mask wearing and the like. Honestly, it still freaks me out. When I try and verbalize the feeling it gives me, the best I can come up with is it somehow feels dehumanizing, it feels unnatural, but I'm not sure that's really even the best descriptor. Perhaps on a simpler level, it can be described this way. I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old son, and when we go outside on our daily walks, he now often sees people driving by or walking by with masks on, and undoubtedly, every time he asks, not a bad guy, right? And I think that sums it up. Americans are used to associating masks with exaggerated movie villains and fear, not protection. It's something so instilled in us that even my toddler, who has never watched a superhero movie or anything of the sort, feels it. Um, and, and you know, I think that's an interesting thing. Like, we've been talking about that a lot, right, Chang? Like, uh, in Asia, people are just used to wearing masks. Um, I think prior to this, a lot of Asian Americans or Asians in America also wore masks and would get teased or looked at funny. Um, how long do you think it's going to take? I mean, do you feel like it's normalized now? Do you feel like seeing people in masks is feels every day, or do you feel like it's just for right now and people still think it's, it's very weird? I think it also depends on, uh, not <laughs> political affiliation too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the, that's the crazy thing is how it has been politicized and it's become this ideology of I, sh- I wear a mask so i believe this or i don't wear a mask because i believe in whatever personal freedoms but it's just that's the problem right like we you and i just had a conversation with dr jim kim who very bluntly put this down as like this is not a <laughs> a political problem this is a public health problem and the only way to fix it is to is to buy in and, and that's that's the problem is it's become you know you represent your politics by what you do with the mask or not.
0: Right. But I I do think it's the new norm. And, um, even after there's a vaccine or a strong therapeutic, I think people are going to continue wearing masks because, um, you know, this isn't the first time there's been a coronavirus. They've, there's been others and, uh, from what I uh, I've talked to a couple of people that are in higher places of government, they'll say, this is going to happen again. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll be better prepared than we are this time, but hopefully it never happens. But I, I know that for example, if I ever get on an airplane, I'm 100% going to wear a mask, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm never not going to, um, or any place like that. And, um, I just think that's the new norm. And and think about this, you know, and, and, and we did a podcast with Dr. Jim Kim and he said that, um, and it was a good benchmark, you know, pre-September 11th, you could literally just like wear anything and do anything and like bring a six pack of beer, <laughs> like a giant 36 ounce of aloe vera, you know, no one would bother you. And now all of a sudden, like when that happened, literally right after September 11th, they had all the security screenings and all this stuff. And it was a giant pain in the ass. And over the years, they've constantly ratched up all of the security measures. And we just got used to it. And um, that's what we're all going to have to get used to is wearing masks. And I wonder as a cook, uh, I wonder about the restaurant industry, how that works. But I also know that restaurants in Hong Kong, restaurants in China, they've gone through SARS. And uh they have adapted. And I know that we will too.
1: Um, Amanda asks, have you truly abandoned pasta water salting? I don't know what that means, Shane. Did you, did yeah, you abandon yeah. pasta water salting I at mean, some point? I didn't hear is about like, this. It's
0: just like so funny. This is why Wiley was even upset. Like I stopped salting my water in my pasta because I don't have that much salt at the time when it happened, I literally didn't have much salt <laughs> and think about it. It's like, To salt pasta water correctly, you're adding, I mean, I've actually never weighed out how much salt you should put into like a pot to cook like a package of pasta, but it's a lot of fucking salt. It's a lot of fucking salt. (laughs) And um, I was just like, it's not worth it. Again, proper cooking, proper techniques, like restaurant caliber stuff is about hitting the bullseye. Now I just want to hit the motherfucking target. And you know what? I can cook the pasta with no water. And I can season it pretty aggressively after the fact. Will it be as good as properly salted water? Absolutely not. But you know what I don't give a shit about? Perfection right now. What I care more about is I'm trying not to get too many mail orders in. And I'm trying not to go to the supermarket unnecessarily. And if that means not getting you know, salt. So this was a
1: quarantine-related adaptation. You weren't you were making some sort of anti-pasta salting or water salting.
0: No. Thing. No, I mean, the way I looked at it, this is remember the three amigos, the great movie with Chevy Chase. Do I remember three
1: amigos? God, come on. Of course.
0: And uh, and Martin Short. So, you know, the scene where Chevy Chase is drinking water.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> Everybody else just has
1: like a sip left and, and Chevy Chase is like brushing his teeth and yeah. And then he just
0: <laughs> dumps half the can on the, on the ground. Like, that's how <laughs> I treated salt before. Like, I don't give a fuck. Now I'm just like, I'm in the desert, and I'm like bunker mentality, and I gotta conserve. Like everything I'm doing is like max conservation. Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> I think that people are <laughs> our friend Wiley Dufresne certainly saw you do that and assumed that you were abandoning all uh, seasoning. So um. a lot
0: of a lot of people got a lot of my friends are so pissed off at me because they're like, well, oh, all these people aren't going to fucking salt their pasta water anymore. I was like, that's not true. <laughs> it's not like i'm telling people to take hydrochloroxoquine. <laughs> yeah,
1: there are, there are people uh out there who are who are suggesting much much worse things than uh conserving your salt right now yeah um okay so speaking of which i cannot tell if this is a real name but i'm gonna have to assume that tim bogus is a real person uh On the recent episode of the show, you talked about maximizing leftovers and limiting trips to the grocery store. At the moment, I have a large batch of black beans that I made up in the crock pot, but doubled thinking it was a good idea to have the food. Do you have any recipes that can can incorporate those black beans? My family is starting to fade uh, when eating these black beans. I'm convinced I don't want to throw them out.
0: Uh, uh, Mr. Bogus, I I actually have one. I was in a similar situation myself. Let me tell you how I got out of it. (laughs) There's your ad sales voice right there. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so this is a great opportunity to make refried beans or puree some of the beans and fold it back in. But uh, you can also change the seasoning. So one of my, my wife made taco Tuesday night, and the next day, oh, no, they wind up using the leftovers Thursday. Um, and on Taco Tuesday, I'm the one that made beans, and I took... Um, I actually used the Instant Pot. I took two bags of black beans from Goya and I added, you know, I think chicken bouillon or whatever. I can't remember. This was like a month ago now. And uh, kept it pretty like on par with with the rest of the flavors. I added some cumin, uh, maybe some cilantro. I can't remember. But it just tasted like really good beans that I'd want with tacos. And the next day I – or when I needed to like reuse them for lunch because we just had some – you know, cold taco shells or like corn tortillas. I decided to add, uh, allspice, something that I've been using quite a bit and a little bit more cumin, a little bit more spice, a little bit more chili pepper. And I sort of just mixed that in and, and, and it just like enhanced the flavor. So it was much more season heavy, but not salt heavy. And, um, I served salsa matcha, uh, with the taco night. Um, and that was like a crazy thing. I I made that with pepitas and sesame seeds and soy sauce and, um, dry chilies, arbol chilies. And you don't have to, but like just Google salsa matcha. I mean, I didn't. My, my recipe was like crazy in and of itself, but it was delicious. And I took some old salsa and I just pureed it. So basically I had like a red sauce and, um, I made enchiladas and I, I had about 10 tortillas and I, I, uh, whipped the, the beans, and I just put a good dollop into each one. And I just rolled them up and I put them into a Pyrex uh, cooking uh, vessel. And then I put them into the oven for like 450 degrees until they got pretty crunchy. And then I topped it all with cotilla cheese. And then I smothered it all in the salsa matcha. And Ooh. it was delicious. And then I topped it all with some avocado. And then I served it on rice. It was great. Whew
1: that is a good use for black beans. <laughs> uh, here's a question that I think is, a I know your answer to, but I'm very curious to hear how you who approach this uh, very specific question from Harris Jabrini, who writes, Hey Dave, I recently tried doing homemade carne asada fries. Simple recipes, guacamole, uh, pico queso sauce, double fried fries, marinated skirt steak, Everything but the fries and queso was absolutely phenomenal. The queso calls for a cornstarch slurry as a thickening agent. Bon appétit queso recipe. But I messed up and I think I didn't cook out the cornstarch well enough and it turned gritty but no lumps. The fries were boiled first for three minutes and fried at 350 then 400. The fries had an initial crispiness but immediately turned soggy. To make matters worse, fries of the same size and cooked for the same amount of time, had different levels of doneness internally. My question is, how would you have fixed the queso and how do you maintain quality of wedge-cut style fries?
0: I'm going to tell you something, Gibran. I have never made queso in my life, <laughs> so I'm not going to lie. But I do, I do know that in one of our restaurants, we use sodium nitrate, um, sodium citrate, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And that makes the best like cheese sauce. It's insane how good the cheese sauce is. Uh, is is that the um, sauce that,
1: that you guys dip uh with the fries at uh major domo maybe we do maybe
0: we don't oh maybe maybe <laughs> that shit's the best though. <laughs> um but like truthfully i'm not the biggest queso on on nachos fan that's just my own personal thing unless i get it a, a like a taco truck and um it's one of the best things i believe it was invented in san diego um And the other problem is, Gibran, you should never make french fries at home. I mean, like, (laughs) unless you're Corey Lee and you're frying in a rice bran oil. Like, that's just something you don't do. I mean, (laughs) see, this is
1: the only answer I thought you were going to give was just don't. Don't.
0: don't. Like, what are you doing, man?
1: (laughs) And especially like a triple cooked fry. Like, yeah, no, 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 no,
0: no. You know what I've ever never cooked at home either? French fries. Ever, ever. Again, like I've done all of these things in professional kitchens, but it's like, you know, as I say, it's like learning how to drive an F1 race car and then driving a Toyota Camry. You know, <laughs> you don't go motocrossing in a, in a Toyota Camry. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe unless you're fast and furious, but there are plenty of recipes. And I'm sure if it got crunchy, you didn't fry it right. And it also could have been the kind of potato you used. Which is why, like, for example, in and out French fries are always like hit and miss because, you know, every time you dig a potato out of the ground, the starch content changes in its life cycle, which is why it's best to have a frozen French fry, which is you can, again, like very consistent and you can control the starch content, which is why they're crispy, uh, for like McDonald's, for an example. But if I was going to do this all over again, I probably wouldn't make my own queso. I probably <laughs> would just buy it and I would probably buy tater tots. And then I would make it, so it'd be like a Sandra Lee semi homemade carne soda fries.
1: Yeah. Speaking of which, are there other things? Uh, I'm so sorry. Anyway, so Harris Jabrini. The short answer is sodium citrate, maybe, but also don't, just don't. Uh, but Chang, are there foods that you just absolutely will not try to make at home right now that you're missing? Like, what do you what do you feel like you want to eat?
0: I miss I miss bong bar a lot. Oh, my God. I miss bong bar. (laughs) I miss bong bar a lot. I miss vertical spit meats. I Uh, miss fried chicken. I miss Sichuan food tremendously. Yeah. Even though I've been making a lot of Sichuan stuff, it's not Sichuan impression or anything like that. Like, you know, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that I miss, but I probably miss the most is, like, just street food. Tacos. You know what I mean? Like you can't make tacos. How are you going to make pastor tacos? And you know what? Here's another thing that I can't get enough of. Everyone's saying, "Well, I thought you hated tacos, Dave," <laughs> from fucking ugly delicious, <laughs> because
1: you because like you made one comment jokingly yeah. about how you prefer I, 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 food.
0: Or, or like I made the posture. It was like a great debate, and I took the the position that someone had to not like tacos. Like, come on,
1: right? Um. Yeah, I miss I, I miss I miss uh weirdly enough I had a craving the other day for a sandwich. I just like we don't have sandwiches. sandwiches. I don't want to you, make sandwiches.
0: You, you know what I really miss too? I miss shitty California uh, Cali- spicy tuna rolls, crunchy. Oh, with,
1: oh my god. Yeah. I know. That's like the biggest guilty pleasure is just
0: I'd i pop them in my mouth like it was a popcorn, piece of popcorn. <laughs> pop. Pop. <laughs> um Okay, next question. Uh,
1: This is from Alex Peter, who says... uh, No, I don't want you to answer this question right now. Sorry, Alex Peter. This is about food festivals. No, no, no. Say it, say it.
0: Say it, it, Alex Peter. Uh, Or Peter Peter,
1: Peter, Alex. Peter Alex. Oh, shit. Maybe I've been reading these backwards. No. Alex Peter. I would love to hear your thoughts on the growing food festival restaurant pop-up scene in America. I think it is an awesome way for restaurants to test out new cities, grow awareness of their brand slash food, and ultimately slash hopefully make money. But I've heard mixed reviews in terms of what restaurant owners think of them, and obviously the varying quality. Uh, Any food festivals or pop-ups you have seen or heard about that you particularly like, or areas you want to
0: see focused on or improved? Um, I'm going to say most of them are a Ponzi scheme. (laughs) And say more. Say some, more. Some some are good, but not that many. And I won't say name names, but most of them are like not great. And why would you want to have a chef cook like not on their home turf? I never understood that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a ripoff. I do. I think it's a ripoff for the guests. And you can never over deliver. You know, it's always maxed out to, like uh, marketing, and then it's really hard to over deliver on these things. But more specifically, if you do like, um, I remember doing the Great Google Muga like years ago in new york when it got rained down it was a nightmare it was it was um you know on, on paper it's one of those things that sound great you have all these stands and all these restaurants and you make food for thousands and thousands of people but the problem is the only person that makes money is the the concert promoters mm-hmm. so you know and then the, they sell you it's a, it's a marketing you know like it's marketing for the restaurants but all of these festivals you got to ask yourself who's making money there's only one person the organizer and, you know, we'll we'll see how these festivals do in a post-COVID world, but um, I, I tend to not do them anymore. Uh, there are a handful that I will entertain to do, but um, it's usually something that if you're just starting out, you feel like you have to because you're like forced into these situations. And I just think that's not true. But um, these are one of the things that um, have to be refigured and recalibrated because I don't think chefs should be doing these. Um, and if they should, everyone should be getting paid up front and no money should be coming out of any restaurant pockets to do these things. I think that's bullshit.
1: Yeah. And not just money, like not even pay to play, but just the, the time spent away from your kitchen, the extra cost. because the, the food cost budget you get to do these things is never what you need, nor do you ever get provided with the amount of money it takes to bring the kind of help you need. And then, you know, I've heard you talk about this enough times that I'm just going to co-op your (laughs) spiel a little bit here, but it's also like the home turf thing is crazy. Like the idea that you can build your brand by, you know, going and cooking 3000 miles away in some kind of like random kitchen, some random part of the world and and sort of represent what you do at home uh, as best you can is crazy. And consumers don't make that distinction. If I go and I see Dave Chang at a food festival, I assume that what I'm eating is the best he can do, and representative of what his food is like at the Momofuku restaurants. And I think that that's 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 the part that that always stings me the most. Is um you know it's hard to do that. It's hard. I see what you guys do at these festivals. I see the ask you know cook 400 portions of this off of this Bunsen burner and make it you know, soigner and, and, you know, it's just, it's not really, it's not really fair.
0: Which is why I try to take the Scott Conant uh, principle. And a lot of people know Scott Conant from, you know, uh, his, his famous dish is basically pomodoro spaghetti. Um, I like Scott Conant for his festival food. Anytime you do those Things. It's not just festival. It's like any of these charities, any of these things where you, you're on like a, a, like a table that's like a disposable table and you have a, like, as you say, Bunsen burger burner and there's like a thousand people waiting to eat and you serve it in this little crappy plate and everyone's expecting it to be amazing. I've, uh, I've never lost sight of the importance of what Scott Conant did because every time I do, um, I'd overlap with him a little bit when these festivals and charity events and these tastings would happen. His line would always be the longest always. And he'd always be by himself (laughs) and he'd always be talking to everybody and enjoying himself. And I was always like, everybody always wanted pork buns to start. It was a nightmare because doing pork buns offsite is a, fucking nightmare please you have the hot pork fat you got to reheat the buns you got the cold you know scallions it's like a seven man operation seven woman operation as a nightmare and i'd always see scott just just by himself maybe another person just casually enjoying himself and you know what he was serving (laughs) polenta with wild mushrooms and it wasn't just Hmm. like like hen of the woods wild mushrooms you're talking like cremini wild mushroom shit and (laughs) It was just polenta. It, it's really good polenta with like a like a mushroom ragu. And uh, guess what? It's a it's 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 a one man pickup. You scoop yep. some of the mushrooms. You scoop some of the polenta. You drizzle a little something something of olive oil. <laughs> para you lines around the, the
1: block. Lines around the block.
0: People people are like, God damn, this is good. You know, I, I I remember one time. I won't say his name, but I remember working my ass off. Working my motherfucking ass off, working on this tasting for like seven hundred fucking people. I can't remember what exactly it was. It was like, you know, like stuffed quail with like blah 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 blah. Like, you know, I'm gonna show the world how how great it can be. You know, uh huh. And like all this work, we spent we spent like seven days doing all these mini torchon this and that, and. uh, you know, you're like, yeah, this is going to blow people away. They're going to love this. And they just like, like, like I was talking about the spicy tuna roll, plop. And they're just like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Blop. they Then, you know, like, they're just like, whatever. That's, that's it. Where's that? What, what, what's next? And, I, and that's when I swear I was like, I'm never going to sacrifice my life for this ever again. Cause you know what? The most <laughs> popular fucking, I'll never forget this day, the most popular goddamn dish in these, this little, set up where there's a thousand people all queuing up behind chefs was fucking cold lasagna on a goddamn toothpick. (laughs) So it's true, true story. Hashtag true story. And I was (sighs) like, fuck this. I, I am never, ever, ever going to sweat again for this shit ever. I'm going to give people, I'm going to give people something forgettable. And you know, my theory about making this, You got to make something forgettable. That's when I really embraced. When you're doing these events, you can only lose. And if you have the best dish, you lose because then you hit the lines too long. And then people (laughs) expect it from you all the time. And you can only lose if you have the worst dish. It takes a lot of balls and courage to try to make a dish that no one remembers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. You don't want to raise expectations. And if you shoot too high, you're just going to fail. You just got to be forgettable. Oh, Dave Chang was there. Dave, I I remember Dave was there. He, That's all you want. Again? That's
0: all you want. You just wanted to be known that you were there. <laughs> you want to pick the group shot with all the chefs and be like, "Yo, what's up? <laughs> I was here too." You know, I was here too. And you know like, you know the mat, you know Jedi Masters in this are like John and Vinny. They they actually put in work. Like let me let me take his back. Like they really put in work. They they make like pizza ovens. They bring pizza ovens the whole night. It's amazing. But like the operation that they do, cause like they, they're really behind baby to baby, a great charity that, uh, especially right now in, in, in coronavirus time needs help. And they're instrumental in, in, in creating one of the best events in the country. And they go all out, but they're also like pull in, pull out. Like they go in as late as possible and they leave as early as possible. And like that's, that's another pro move. You, if you're going to like go all out, you go all out for like, like, the only time it really counts. Uh-huh. <laughs> Take your photo, do what you got to do, shake the hands and get the fuck out. <laughs> That's another pro move. That's a John and Vinny move and shout out to John and Vinny. Those guys are, are real, real pros. I don't think people give them enough credit for being great operators.
1: Well, they have an amazing like, catering background that like, they, they are primed for this. They, they know the score Better than anybody else who's going to try to stuff quails and make torsons
0: you never you never to, you fun. never want to be the last person leaving a charity event <laughs> ever <laughs> ever <laughs> ever you want you never want to be the last person being like ah oh, we so we got to get the lex hands we got to get the damn cooler uh oh, this sucks and you're <laughs> you just know, waiting waiting <laughs>
1: I think that I, I, uh, you know when when you organize the um that that charity dinner around the wildfires. Was that two years ago now? Almost more than that. Um, Oh yeah. I thought that format was really cool. It was just the potluck format. Everybody brings, it's just buffet style lineup and you've got like the best chefs in the world, each who only
0: have to make, you know, portions of one side dish. Thank you. Um, I'm going to take full credit for this. Full (laughs) fucking credit for the potluck. It was kind Uh, of
1: incredible how many people, those, those, what, like 800,000 people that were fed, like all timely? Yeah,
0: we did it at the line. This is when uh, World Central Kitchen was probably a year plus in there, but, uh, you know, Jose showed up and we were um, raising money for the first responders for the wildfires that got really bad three years ago. And We hosted it at Roy Choi's uh, uh, um, um, pot at the time. And, you know, this is before Major Dome opened. And I was like, how do we do this where, you know, we actually like judo move this whole thing and you're not making uh, food that sucks, right? Like that's tweezer food. Like, and and every time you have Mm -hmm. to control, like, the. The environment and the universe that people make food because inevitably you're always going to get one chef that tries to be the coolest motherfucker. And like, check, like, again, like, check out this. I've just stuffed mm-hmm. Rouget with this and this and this, and I've glued it together and it's on a, you know, this device that you eat. And it, it it's like, and again, like I've been that asshole. You, <laughs> you ruin it because first of all, you make it so hard for anyone else. Right, because like it's so much better than everyone else's. Secondly, it's like it slows everything up because you like it just is a nightmare. So just lower your expectations. You could still make great food if it's just a scoop and serve, and that's what the whole premise of this this uh, potluck was. With we got all the chefs, Jess Coslow, actually like every chef in Los Angeles came in, and all they they didn't even have to show up. We told them you don't have to show up. You just have to drop off your food. Being LA, everyone still showed up with two, we said two giant, um, deep six hotel, six pans, um, a hotel pans, deep hotel pans of food. And we didn't even tell them, you know, we had people, multiple people make the same thing. It didn't matter, you know? Mm. And I guess that we had like 50 chefs and it was just scoop and serve. It was like being in the best cafeteria meet and three you've ever been to. And, you know, obviously some of us were making meat, so we sort of had an idea, but, you know people were leaving with sh- like cafeteria trays just with a mountain of food and it was like for 80 bucks and i mean a mountain of food it was like a gross amount because everyone's giving you one scoop or two scoops of whatever they made and it was the most amazing thing and everyone's like this is the best thing i've ever done i'm like yeah we need to do more of these potluck forever
1: it was it was an incredible amount of food i think the uh, <laughs> the one thing is like like you said all the chefs showed up to serve the food like cafeteria, lunch lady style. Uh, uh, onto onto plates um <laughs> the one thing is like as you're traveling down this row like you're coming face to face with all these chefs you admire and you're not going to say no to anybody you're not going to be like no I don't want I don't want your collard greens Daniel Patterson so you just <laughs> end up with 50 portions of food on your plate uh which was amazing it was it was it was uh it's pretty amazing to like take the piss out of these like super ritzy stuck up kind of like you said quail and torschan style cherry people just
0: dinners. want people just want to eat and like, get the fuck out of there. And that's what we did. And I was like, that was like literally one of the best things we ever did.
1: Yeah, it was fun. Um, let's see. Let's just do a couple oh, more here, Chang.
0: Let, let, me, let me get into uh, today's episode of the Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. Look, as you guys know, I tend to give it to you straight. And while I know a lot of things, I also know there are times when I need to lean on others for help. When it comes to insurance, State Farm is the one I count on. I love that they make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim with their app, which was just awarded Best Insurance Mobile App of 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that truly meets your needs versus cookie-cutter coverage. But what I appreciate most is that they don't mess around. They don't bother with gimmicks or games, just helpful guidance you can rely on. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. Today's episode of the Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. During this time of change, we want you to know that ZipRecruiter's focus hasn't changed. They're still doing what they've always done helping people find work and helping businesses find the right people for their open roles. If you're looking for a job, ZipRecruiter is working with you to find the right job faster. They are dedicated to helping you get hired from caretaking to delivering food and goods to building medical facilities, supplying protective equipment, and so much more. In fact, ZipRecruiter's app will send you up-to-date job openings so you can be the one of the first to apply. And if you're actively hiring, ZipRecruiter will invite candidates to apply to your most urgent roles, making it fast and easier to reach the people you need. By connecting people who need jobs and companies that need people, ZipRecruiter is working with all of us so we can keep moving forward. Let's work together. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. How about that, Yang? Huh? Pretty good. (laughs) That was seamless, man. That was incredible. Um, And now back to the show. And now back to the show.
1: <laughs> uh, Paul Kim writes, when you talk about Momofuku, especially the early days of the restaurant, you talk about cooking things that you weren't supposed to or weren't allowed to, breaking the rules, so to speak. What are these rules and how did you break them?
0: Okay. I'm just going to go out and say this right now because we may never come back. So fuck it. Who cares? <laughs>
1: It's okay to be boastful here, Chang.
0: Let's just let's now. Now, now now I'm just going to own it. You know what we did? We were the first restaurant ever, I believe, ever to serve onsen tamago in ramen. Yep, never happened. Like that's not something you did, right? You you served you served ramen with a hard boiled egg or a soft boiled egg, but at that time in America, no one even knew about it. The soy boiled like soft egg that was still too too like. And it's so funny when you look back on it. That wasn't contemporary ramen in America. And j- even in Japan at that time, like when I lived there, I was so lucky because it was like the peak ramen. Like you were just getting to that soft boiled, gelled egg yolk state, uh, you know, a- a- of a soy egg and getting it popular. But for the most part, still, ramen was a hard boiled egg. So, you know, to me, one of the rule breaks was actually doing unscent egg. But we didn't have a water circulator. You know how we made those fucking things? I stuck my finger in a perforated hotel pan that was in a deep hotel pan, and we put it over a candy burner stove, and we brought it to like what we thought was like just hot enough. If you could stick your finger in there and it for around eight seconds, around eight seconds when you had to pull your finger out, that was the right temperature for the water to <laughs> be. <laughs> And that's how we cooked our eggs. So all these fucking people with water circulators making these eggs, I was like, I dare you to do this with not a water circulator because that's how we used to do them. Like so many flats a time (laughs) in a a day. And the main reason why I did onsen tamagos was I didn't have the labor because at the time, no one wanted to work with me. I was an army of one. I didn't have the time to peel the eggs. Mm -hmm. So I needed a new thing. And I was like... You know, we've told the story before in the cookbook and so on. That uh, when I was eat, watching uh, Formula Fifty One with Samuel L. Jackson in Shinjuku, because like I couldn't afford to watch movies that were like current, I had to watch. Movies. Yeah, <laughs> I was sitting next to a woman, and she brought out a sukiyaki don. So it's sukiyaki on rice, and she, out of a purse, she brought out a fucking egg. And I was like, "Wow, this is so hardcore." She's gonna crack a fucking raw egg right into this because that's what you sort of do with sukiyaki, like raw egg. And she cracked out this thing that it fell out, and I was like, "What the fuck did I just see?" And it looked like a like a completely formed egg that cracked, like cracked out. Like the, imagine seeing that for the first time in a movie theater. My brain exploded, which is why I remember that goddamn movie so well because I was like, "This is like a, a landmark moment in my life," and I just knew that that had to like be like incorporated somehow. I didn't know simultaneously at that time, Anthony arteries of Mugare's was like around that same time, uh, unveiling to the world at, uh, Madrid fusion, you know, one of the, 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 premier sort of food sort of conference, uh, the idea of a, a slow poached egg in the shell at around 62 Celsius. And like, so it was like two separate events. And I didn't also know that Wiley was there and Wiley took that concept. and he put that on the media WD 50 and, uh, but at the time, like you weren't supposed to put onsen and eggs, so I did. That was one. Other two, other one was like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna serve pork buns." You were only supposed to do dumplings. We had dumplings and chahan, chahan being fried rice. So like, we did that. And the, then then it was like, the other rule breaking thing was like, wait, we were trying to be a noodle shop, and no one even knew what a noodle shop was. So yeah. that's when we were like, "Fuck it, like let's just." You know, I remember because we're about to go out of business. We had probably like three weeks of money left. And spring was just rolling in. And it was like we had asparagus hit in the market and ramps. And I remember like, can we just cook this? Who cares, right? Before, we couldn't cook that because we had to like follow and toe the line of what we believe the noodle bar was, which was dumplings and everything that was specifically Asian. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. We're just going to use this because – it's here. It's at the market, and we're just going to serve good food using good ingredients, which was what we were trying to do. But we didn't find our voice until later, and that's when things really sort of came off the rails in a very good way. We just said, "Fuck it, let's just cook whatever we want." Mm-hmm.
1: I-, I think the underlying thing there, Dave. I mean, I mean you know, you you sort of <laughs> point to the own tamago in ramen as as like the the breaking of the rules there, but. Um, that's like a very modest way of putting what you were doing, which was in my mind, you were taking seriously and applying craft and care and conscientiousness and creativity to a, a level of price point and a quote unquote level of restaurant that had never really been allowed to be taken seriously before. Yeah. You could think about what went into a, a bowl of ramen, you could go to the farmer's market. It, you know, it's crazy. I mean, I don't think that I had this experience as we were working on on, on your upcoming book. Um, just, I, I mean, there are a few people who are closer to this than, than me. And I, I had a hard time remembering, you know, early 2000s, late 90s when food was just completely different. Like there was a line in the sand between what a restaurant was, a nice restaurant, and, you know, what a what you ate at a quote-unquote ethnic restaurant or what you had for family meal. And, And that was like the huge thing was if stuff is delicious, if this is delicious and this is the most delicious way to do it, I think what you did at Momofuku was to say, then who cares? We can serve it. There's no rule that says we shouldn't be able to serve what we would serve at family meal. There's no rule that says I can't use the best ingredients in this bowl of ramen, um, you know, and that applied across the board. There's no re- reason why I can't play Wu-Tang Clan in the, in the restaurant. Like, this shit that we take for granted now, and maybe now appreciate now that we're in coronavirus, um, it, it just wasn't that way in America uh, before, you know, I mean, frankly, before Momofuku, I think.
0: There are all these ramen shops. Like, almost every city's got a pretty good ramen, yaw. And, like, I, I see how contemporary it is. Like, I don't think people realize just how crazy it was, because we never claimed to make great ramen even though i thought it was really good we intentionally not never served donkotsu ramen because i just think it's gross like it's not that i don't want to eat it i it just it's not what i want to make every day and i wanted to make sure that was different from what it was having in contemporary japan because i just too much respect for it but now like there's such a eas- not easy the supply chain to get good ingredients is pretty easy like for example like we use the the you know, one of the rule breaking things was like the the found everything we did. I, I actually guess was somewhat rule breaking, but we were breaking the rules to honor authenticity and 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 respect the traditions of Japan and at least the food cultures. I I knew the contemporary ramen was using a lot of seafood, a lot of uh, waffle uh, style was uh, using the double dip then. Um, and a lot of uh, lot of not just dashi but mackerel and anchovies and such, and I just knew that wasn 't going to work and plus i couldn 't really get good katsubushi, so i didn 't want to make an inferior product that was based on Japanese ingredients, but I wanted to honor a sort of those elements of smokiness and i 've always felt that smoke was um, a very significant presence, but never plays a like a a fore role in Japanese food because there 's a subtle hint of smokiness throughout Japanese food and i wanted that note but i didn't want to get shitty product so you know we started making our our ramen broth with benton's bacon in, instead right and mm. like th- those those are different like weirdly rule breaking but we're breaking the rules to honor tradition because i wanted the smoky element but i also want a great product and i couldn't i'd rather make it with a different product than substandard product
1: right you wanted to abide by the spirit of the thing
0: rather than the letter of the law right that's, uh-huh.
1: well, you know I, I don't know. I feel like we're being sent down this this memory lane here that like makes me. I, 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 each time we talk about Momofuku or, or these restaurants, I just
0: like get wistful for getting back to. Well, it. listen, this is the most we've ever. This is really the most we've ever talked about Momofuku. That's not a pre-opening diaries and talking about a new restaurant because like, you know, I don't want this to be a Momo commercial. But like, you know, there's been a lot of nostalgia of late like, for good reason. And honestly, I don't fucking care. <laughs> anymore. So if we don't get a chance to talk about it, we may never have the chance to talk about it ever again. Yeah. And
1: you know, I, I like you said, who, who who cares? And I don't think that anybody's going to mistake this for, for advertorial. Like it's just, you know, it's the world we're in right now. Um, all right. One last question, Chang, Somebody's asking you, we've started receiving questions about equipment here. Um, another name that I can't, Really tell if it's real or not, but Zach Bro says, "Hey Dave, I broke down to the hype and bought one of those restaurant quality carbon steel pans that are advertised on every social media." How, wait, hold podcast. on. How is
0: how is Bro spelled?
1: Like Bro, like Hey Bro, B R O.
0: I was hoping it was like B R E lot over the E <E-A-U>. A U. <laughs> Brow.
1: No, I. I brow i thought or or like b-r-e-a-u-x and he's like a cajun cajun fan um I broke down to the hype and bought one of those restaurant quality carbon steel pans that are advertised on every social media and podcast (laughs) platform imaginable. Uh, I'm I'm a fairly advanced home cook, and I honestly cannot find the benefit to this thing. I got it, followed the instructions for seasoning, never quite got it nonstick. And the second I took a slight misstep and so much as squeezed a lemon in it, my seasoning was wholly ruined. I had black flakes in my food, and I was back to ground zero. I do not have the same issues with the $30 Lodge cast iron. Just curious if I completely bought into the hype and got swindled, or is there some pro chef maintenance knowledge I'm missing that helps these things
0: actually work? Well, bro, um, bro, bro, you, <laughs> all the all, all the buff, all the buff just happen, <laughs> bro, all the buff. <laughs> Sorry, bro. Uh, I bro, mean, do you use bro, bro, the- <laughs> bro? It's like major, like major, major, major in Catch twenty two, bro bro. <laughs> bro, 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 bro. Bro, 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 bro. But listen, uh, <laughs> you got you didn't you didn't get swindled. You bought a really good pan. I don't even know that it was being uh, advertised. So black steel is a carbon steel pan, right? So I call them black steel because that's ultimately what it is. I think a a uh, a good cast iron lodge is a great company. Smithy's another one that just started up. There's a lot of good cast iron uh, uh, pans and pots and Dutch ovens. It's a wonderful thing to have because it'll last you f- literally multiple generations if properly treated and you don't allow it to rust and even if it is rusted over, you can refurb it pretty easily and get it back to working function. Cast iron is still probably the the like one of the best ways to cook uh but in a professional kitchen like in a big range like if you have this right and you have tons of let's just say you're working fish station and you have like 25 fish orders to pick up in the next 30 minutes. You need something that's a little bit lighter than a cast iron pan because you have so many pots and pans and, and cast iron is great at home because like, it's easier to clean a little bit because the maintenance isn't so much. Like you wipe it down, you can wash it with a sponge, but don't take off all the stuff. And you know, you can just treat it with some oil and put it back in the oven and reseason it pretty easily. The the the, the black steel is uh, lighter; it's easier for cooks to use. And the biggest thing again is the BTUs. And and like I I just remember like when I first saw it at Craft, you know, if you work fish station, there's probably like fifteen small black steels on another. Ten to twelve large black steels all stacked on top of each other on a flame, so they're all ripping hot like mm-hmm. they're all hot you're not like getting it hot, it's already like on a blasting inferno, and they're meant to be constantly hot, mm. like always hot all the fucking time until it's the end of service, and at the end of service the, you know we'd clean them with salt and oil, and then you know just burn the shit out of it. Basically, so to incinerate anything that's in the pot and pan, you know, wipe it down with oil and then, you know, season pretty aggressively with salt and then just bake it again on on, on the stovetop. And it's easier to do because like you need the BTUs, but it's like the maintenance is easier when you have you're using it all the time. That's what I'm basically trying to say. Black steel is easy when you're using it literally all night long or all day long. When you're just using it once in a while, it's not better. I prefer a black steel, but I don't have a black steel at home because it's a pain in the ass to take care of because I'm not cooking with it all day long. And that's the difference between a professional and home kitchen, which is why in a home kitchen, cast iron to me is the metal of choice. In a professional kitchen, I think it's black steel. And another reason why people don't have cast iron on stations, when you're cooking professionally, you might have like a Dutch oven, and I've seen that before. You might have one or two of the the, the sort of the this larger skillet pans for for like frying chicken and such, right? Because you're not leaving, it's not leaving the the burner. But you really don't see cast iron in professional kitchens because it's heavy, and it's it's just not as easy to maneuver around. And that's that's the main reason why. Yeah. Um, Zach
1: Bro has a little bit of a postscript here, who and he says his working theory, if I'm doing it wrong, is that I'm going too high heat, which seems like the exact opposite of his
0: problem. No. Like, I mean, high heat is your friend, particularly when you're using these products, because that's how the best... One of the best ways to clean them is just to carbonize everything that's in the... Right.
1: And also, it's just like, it's not... I mean... I have a carbon steel pan at home that I never use, like, on it, like, primarily, to be honest with you, because when you're seasoning these things and, and using them at ultra-high heat, like, you're just going to set off your smoke alarm at home. Like, if you don't have a professional hood, it's really not fun to cook with this stuff constantly. And, uh, you know, I have neighbors who hate me already.
0: Yeah, and it's the same reason why, like, people are like, why don't you have a walk?" I was like, you know why I don't have a walk? Because I don't have the BTUs. Yeah. You know number BTUs, one. And number, number, number two, I don't have a pop Popeye arm. And number three... <laughs> It's like, you know, walk real, like, like walks that are made of similar materials are like, they're seasoned a different way, obviously, but like they're constantly in use and they need water. Like you actually need a walk station in your home to use a walk, which is why I'm happy to use like a nonstick walk. Um, Well, that's, we, we tore through a bunch here, Chang. You
1: got anything else you want to say to the audience here? We're doing, uh, we're doing burnt too, right? We're going to, we're going to watch burnt, uh, the next two days. So, you know, this will come out before that happens. So if you, so I guess if anybody's out there who hasn't seen burnt yet and wants to play along with us next week, now's the time to, uh, to rent it.
0: And if you were someone that used to listen to this podcast in your car, I have a suggestion. Just go out to your car, turn your battery on and listen to this in your car
1: just for the effect just drive drive to where your place of work was don't get out of the car and get back and and go home
0: (laughs) exactly exactly all right give us five stars however you rate this uh stitcher spotify apple Uh, next podcast is coming out friday thursday no
1: what today this podcast will have come out on thursday and then we'll have another one on monday oh my god um, i thought today
0: was monday i thought i literally (laughs) thought today was monday
1: Well, you made me think the same thing.
0: So next Monday, we're going to have the
1: uh, illustrious Wiley Dufresne on.
0: So just to let you know where I'm at in my life and how flummoxed I am, (laughs) I was having a call with Marge at at, at work, and I was like, yeah, you know, we should have it ready by mid-April. And she's like, Dave, it's almost May. I was like, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) This is a Rip rip Van Winkle shit. What the what? I said Joe Montaigne.
1: Yeah. We're we're at the end of April here. We're it's gonna be okay, Jake. It's gonna be okay.
0: Um, all right, man, I gotta go. I gotta wash uh give Hugo a bath. All right, dude.
1: I'll talk to Bye. you later.